What happened? Why did it happen? And what's next? We take a look at Tuesday's primary election results next on Deep Background. Greetings, you're on Deep Background for August 6, 2020, the first Deep Background after this year's primaries, which means we have a lot to talk about with one of the great reporters uh, in McClatchy, our friend Brian Lowry from Washington. Derek Donovan is always uh, my co-host with us. Brian, so great to hear your voice, and uh, I assume you've recovered a little bit from Tuesday, I think we all expected we were going to be up until four in the morning and there'd be no result. That didn't turn out to be the case. Yeah, I mean, it's actually kind of fascinating where the Kansas Secretary of State's office is making this real effort to tell people to not expect final results because of the races we thought were close uh, on Tuesday. And, you know, I even know that the Associated Press was was figuring out they probably wouldn't be able to call the Senate until Friday because of mail ballots, but Roger Marshall's victory in the U.S. Senate primary was greater than the number of uh, outstanding mail ballots. So, you know, as as close as it was down the stretch, you know, Marshall told me his own internal polling only two to four points, but he seemed to win every undecided vote uh, across the state, and he really clobbered. Uh, uh, you know, so it, it allowed for a shorter night. Uh, it was uh, it, it was shocking to see, you know, given just how some of these uh, intense primaries were on the Kansas side of the border, uh, that the winners won quite so convincingly. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, before we leave and to, to talk about specific races, the turnout was really high and people are saying, oh, that's enthusiasm and people care. But it had a lot to do with mail-in ballots, didn't it, Brian? Oh, it absolutely, it absolutely did. People were voting by mail, which shows you what impact voting by mail can have on uh, on turnout. Yeah, I mean, in, in both states, uh, mail ballots were really important. And there, there's obviously very – there's differences. Uh, Kansas has had mail balloting around as an option for any reason since 1996. Never been used to this level of degree. The number of mail ballot requests around the state were six times greater than we had seen in the the previous two um, the previous two elections. So that's a really significant uh, total, and I, I think it, it it probably did drive up uh, the turnout in both the Democratic and Republican primaries, and certainly in Missouri, which Missouri still has a, a bit more of an arduous process, unless you fall into specific categories, you had to still go to see a notary public uh, to send in your mail ballot. That said, it probably did help drive up turnout in, in, in those states as well. And I think, I think some, a lot of Kansans probably weren't aware until this election that they had this as an option. So, Right, and some election boards, I mean, the Johnson County Election Board actually sent notices to voters saying, here's an application for a mail-in ballot, right. which that's unusual. I believe almost every county in the state sent some sort of reminder to people that you had this. And the uh, the two largest counties in the state, Johnson and Cedric, went as far as you said to send the actual application out, as did a couple of other. So that certainly, like it, 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 I think, walked everyone through what an easy process this is. And uh, it, it will be interesting to see if, you know, when life goes back to normal, you know, hopefully in 2022, uh, 
we're not still in this, but will some Kansans say, you know what, I love mail voting now and, and stick with that as their preferred their prefer, preferred uh, way of, of casting their vote? All right. Well, let's take a look now at the specific races. And obviously, we want to highlight, uh, uh, Brian, the Senate race. Uh, and I think you're suggesting, and I've seen some reporting uh, that suggests that there was a late break for Roger Marshall, that maybe in the last 48 hours, this idea that he was the most electable uh, really took hold among some Republican voters. Do you think that's what happened or what happened? It's part of it. It's part of it. I don't want to say it's the sole thing, but I think – you know, Marshall's own internal polling by what he's told me, and this this gels with what other Republicans have have told me, had him up uh, between four points. And obviously his he ends up with a double-digit margin. Well, a couple things happened. Well, one was that you saw in those final couple of days uh, some of the leaks to me and other reporters, uh, you know, are, are these strategic leaks that are – Letting people know, like, you know, there was actually, there was a pretty amazing quote from Josh Holmes, one of Mitch McConnell's top advisors to the New York Times, saying uh, that, like, we are going to lose the Senate if Chris Kobach is the nominee. Well, not now, only that, not only the leak, right, Brian, it was the fact that the Times did a story, the Post right. did a story, well, it's, 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 did a story the Star right. did a story. <laughs> well, and the Star would have been covering and has been covering right, it. Right, right, right. There was this onslaught, but I, I mean, and but there was a strategic aspect of that onslaught when you have an on-record quote like that. Now, granted, I, I think if, if Kansas really is up for grabs, it, it's probably likely that the Republicans will have lost Maine and Arizona. Kansas probably won't actually be, in any case, the determining factor of who controls. However, when you're putting information out like that, when you're you're saying when you when you actually like what was leaked to me and others was this. Was stat that if if Kobach was the nominee, close to thirty percent of GOP voters would go to Boyer. You are sending a very clear message to people that like what is what is at stake, and I, I think for a lot of folks is you know Kobach had a had a fairly low ceiling. If you hadn't decided, you know, the day that Kobach launched that you were voting for Chris Kobach, you were probably not likely persuaded to him. To vote to vote for him. Whereas Marshall, I think at the end of the day, he became that consensus pick, and, and it, you had this onslaught of of spending on his behalf. He also, though, let's face it, he faced a lot of negative spending. Some of it pretty vicious uh, from Peter Thiel's pack, Free Forever, which which got into some very nasty things. But also, uh, there was that Democratic group that was trying to get Kobach across the line, and it was that some people think that it was the Democratic funded attacks that were trying to get Kobach across the line that actually really benefited Marshall in the end because it allowed Republicans to put out this idea. Like, see, they are trying to get Chris Kobach across the line. One of the Senate leadership funds final ads was actually about the democratic ad. So, and and I said on local television today, Brian, that that, that tactic was to me the biggest loser of this cycle because it, it was funny and interesting when Claire McCaskill did it for Troy Aiken, but now people see it coming and it sort of doubles back on itself. So this idea that you can promote someone in the other party in a backwards way seems to be a, a relic. It's not going to yeah. work very much. And, and, and I think there is also an aspect when you talk, look at the, the margin of Marshall's victory, which you had alluded to on Twitter. I had actually made a similar point to Jonathan Shorman in a text, but it was I wasn't willing to put that out for larger uh, publication when you were. You were a little bit more aggressive on me. Um, 
probably Hamilton took more votes from Kobach than he did Marshall. Now, I think Marshall still would, if you look at the margin of victory, that not every single Hamilton voter would have been a Kobach voter otherwise. I think Marshall would still would have won, but it probably would have been a lot closer, more of a nail biter. But, you know, it's kind of ironic because Hamilton put a lot of resources into attacking Roger Marshall. In those final two days, Hamilton's campaign was sending out text messages attacking Roger Marshall. They had TV ads for um, – we're getting into this incident that uh, Jonathan and I have covered about uh, Roger Marshall and this, uh, he was, he was charged with reckless driving. And then, you know, the case obviously took some weird turns after that. And ultimately he wound up with a minor traffic infraction. You know, Hamilton was leaning really hard into the attacks on Marshall, but really he probably took more votes from Chris Kobach because he was running a Chris Kobach style campaign. So GOP voters who were persuaded by the idea that Chris Kobach couldn't win, but didn't like Roger Marshall and wanted someone a place to go or, uh, you know, a MAGA type campaign probably gravitated towards Hamilton. So while, while he personally tried to beat up on Marshall more, he probably ended up uh, hurting Kobach more in the long run. And we should tip our cap, shouldn't we, to Roger Marshall. I mean, he did 40% vote share statewide in a field with 11 candidates, including Chris Kobach, including Hamilton with five or six million bucks. I mean, that 40% is a reasonably good showing in that situation. And and there's a couple ways he got at that. But one way is he stuck to his gun about of his strategy, and it's not the most inventive strategy in the world. It's one that Pat Roberts and Jerry Moran and plenty of others have had before. Was to lean heavily on the big first, and, and the thing is, while Johnson County is the most populous county in the state, when you take those sixty-three counties in the big and you add them up together, you have more you have more Republican primary voters than any of the other congressional districts. It's the most heavily Republican district, and so it plays an outside, outsized role in uh, Republican primaries. But it's not just the big first. He also did really well. So that combo, he, he, he ended up winning Johnson County, but that combo of Wichita plus the big first really made him unstoppable. And his margin of victory was huge in those places. I mean, he, he won the Wichita area, the county, Wichita and the surrounding counties, by solidly 20 points on Kobach, he was in the high 40s in all those places. And then if you look at the big first counties, he's winning by 50, 60 points. And so he does win in Johnson County. And he actually told me that he, that was the one that he actually appreciated the most because he expected Johnson County ends up winning uh, that by by double digits. And he said it was in the home court of the others. Now, he lost the other county around the Kansas City area. He lost Wyandotte. He lost Leavenworth. He lost Miami County. And in eastern Kansas, for the most part, Kobach and Marshall uh, – or Kobach and Hamilton fared better than Marshall, but they kind of split those eastern Kansas counties. And when you run up the score like that in Wichita and western Kansas, and you still do pretty well comparatively in Joko, it's tough to beat you. All right. Final question on this race, just quickly, because I want to move on to the House races, and then we need to take a break. But uh, so uh, it's Roger Marshall against Bart Bollier, and I think the conventional wisdom before the primary was, boy, she's got a shot, and then Marshall wins, and now everybody's saying, oh, it's over, she has no shot. 
Uh, we'll, we'll obviously explore this topic closer to November, but we've got a race. It might not be the most uh, scintillating race in the country, but it'll be on a lot of top 10 lists. How I would say the thing about this race is with Kobach and Bollier, it was probably a toss-up race. It's now a lean Republican race. It's not necessarily a slam dunk. And Marshall wouldn't tell you it's a slam dunk either. He knows he, he needs to do things. But the, the window hasn't entirely closed for Bollier, but it's more narrow now. Um, Democrats would acknowledge to you that it, it is a tougher race, but she still has and, you know, it does go back to the part of, you know, we, you look at the geography. Marshall is weaker in eastern Kansas than he is in other parts of Kansas. Where is Barbara Boyer from? Eastern Kansas. So she needs to more in the Kansas City area as much as possible. And then she can do that. She also then needs to figure out what is an in, what is a way, and I don't know what, what the answer for is, or a way that she can neutralize his strength in western Kansas and at least try to break even in the Wichita area or competitive in the Wichita area. Because One of the things about this is that there's a perception out there that Roger Marshall is a more moderate candidate when it comes to his positions on things. But when it really comes right down to it, most of the, most of the candidates in this race are going to have very little light between them. And, you know, Roger Marshall has been an extremely strong supporter of, of Donald Trump. And I, I think there's a lot of voters out there who think, oh, he's he's not a firebrand like that. It, oh, it's the, to get your point, your point of that, it's one of the great ironies is that Roger Marshall, look at national outlets, they constantly label him as a moderate. And he's only in moderate in the sense of who he's ran against in his career, Tim Hulescamp and Chris Kobach in his two most high-profile races. And yes, he is more moderate than uh, Chris Kobach and Tim Hulescamp, but it would be hard to find a person who wouldn't be. Sam Brownback would be a moderate uh, compared to Chris Kobach or uh, Tim Hillscamp. So yeah, he voted with Trump 98% of the time, which is the highest in the Kansas delegation of either chamber. He certainly embraced Trump. Now he got hit by Kobach and his allies over the fact that he was a Kasich supporter. You know, I, I do think ultimately uh, Marshall will probably vote fairly similar to how Pat Roberts votes now. And part of his campaign theme has been that he's going to maintain the status quo for Kansas uh, Republicans, but yeah, he certainly is a conservative candidate. And let's get to, like the idea of what is Bollier's path. One thing she did that was interesting was she went up on air early. She's she has stocked out a lot of money in this race compared to the other candidates, but she was advertising early. And why would she do that? I mean, she was going to win the Democratic primary regardless. Well, she was advertising for moderate Republican voters. She was advertising for the voters. Watch, and, and I'm sure we'll get deeper into the, the down ballot effects later on, but uh, she was advertising for the voters who were watching the ads from Roger Marshall, Chris Kobach, and Bob Hamilton and saying, I don't like any of these guys. Right, I'm an alternative. And she was presenting herself as an alternative. So, you know, she is a candidate who has a very, you know, compelling case for moderate Republicans as a former Republican as a suburban professional, a doctor, uh, the question is whether there's enough of those voters that you can build that coalition uh, between Democrats, moderate Republicans, and unaffiliated voters. I'll just say this quickly, and then I think we're close up against a break, Derek, so hang in there. But a couple of quick things. 
first of all, uh, the last uh, Johnson County who went to the Senate was Jim Pearson in 1972. So it's a rare thing. And Kansas has never sent a Johnson County Democrat to the Senate. So Barb Boyer, if she wins, will have set that uh, record for the state. Quickly, 30 seconds. Is this it for Chris Kobach? I, I don't think he's ever going to really go away. Somebody tweeted at me asking if Kobach would become the Clay Chastain <laughs> politics. I don't think that's quite it. But I, I do think the idea of him as a front runner for for top of the ticket races is done or at least done for a while until he can prove he can win again because you know he's he's lost the governor's race in a general election and then he's lost the primary quite convincingly so it doesn't look like his path is at the level of of running for senate or governor you know does he have options if he runs for a lower level rate for a u.s house race down the line or potentially a running running for attorney general or hell running to get his old job back as secretary of state. I I wouldn't count him out if he does set his sights a little bit lower, but um, you know, I I think, I think if, you know, I I don't know who you credit more with kind of stopping Kobach's career, Laura Kelly or Roger Marshall, you kind of have to credit them both, right? How about um, we credit Chris Kobach for ending his yeah, career? Yeah, you credit Chris Kobach. Let's take a break and we come back, we'll talk about the house races. You're on deep background. Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it head to kansascity.com slash background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to the star for $1.99 total. That's right, you get access to kansascity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So, go grab your computer or mobile device and head to kansascity.com slash background. And hey, thanks for listening. Okay, you're back on Deep Background for August 7th. I guess my microphone is better now. (laughs) The technology in this world is just something you have to struggle with every once in a while. Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board, Derek Donovan, my friend and colleague, and then Brian Lowry joining us from Washington. Okay, we so Brian, we talked about uh, talked about the Kansas Senate race. So let me pose this hypothetical, and, and you tell me where you think it would go. Donald Trump calls Amanda Adkins this afternoon and says, you know what, I'm going to endorse you on Twitter. Does she say, thank you, Mr. President, or did she say, thank you, Mr. President, but no thank you? I mean, I I think she probably would say thank you, Mr. President, but what I would say, I think she would tell, she would certainly tell the president thank you. And then I think when she got off the phone, uh, she might talk to her campaign manager, who should hopefully call the White House political team and advise against it, right? You know, it, it is one of those things. It, it's tough to think of Amanda Adkins as an underdog when you think about this is a former party chair, this is a, a Cerner executive, this is a woman whose father spent $300,000 to help her win the primary. But in terms of this district, in terms of getting the W, she is the underdog in this race. And while there are more Republican voters 
in the third district. The third district is more democratic now than it was two years ago when Sharice Davids beat Kevin Yoder. Democratic registration in the third district is rising at a faster rate than Republican uh, registration. It's very close right now. Republicans are about 39%. Democrats are close to 33%. And then, you know, then you got a lot of unaffiliated voters so that it's really about who wins those unaffiliated voters um, becomes uh, the member of Congress. And so it's, it's a district. It's the only district that voted against Trump. I don't think we have any reason to think that it's going to get closer to Trump in this presidential election. And so, you know, the, the Republican theory for winning this district hinged a lot on the idea that Bernie Sanders would be uh, the Democratic um, nominee. And then you would get to like, Therese Davids would have to spend months talking about how she's not a socialist, but she still supports. Right. This makes it easier for Davids to just run her race and keep it on the kind of that appeal to moderate voters that she's been making for the for the past two and a half years. I mean, I'm struck by the, you know, if you're Roger Marshall and you're running statewide, uh, Brian, you you, you want to uh, attach yourself to Donald Trump. He, can, he he did that in the primary. He'll do yeah. that in the general. Uh, in, and that may work in Kansas, although I think in Kansas, like other states, the president's popularity is not what it was four years ago. But in the third district, where Hillary Clinton won by one point and where in 2018 Sharice Davids beat Kevin Yoder by six points. I think it was like nine. I think it was like nine. Well, more than that. It's clearly a puzzle for the Republican nominee to not embrace the president and yet embrace him enough to get the voters in Olathe and other sort of more conservative parts of the county to come out and vote. And I, that's a really tough needle to thread. It seems it's, it's an incredibly different, uh, ca- difficult calculus. And Kevin Yoder certainly didn't figure quite figure it out in uh, in 2018. It's and he be- and let's just be clear: Kevin Yoder's a smart guy, smart politician, polling at his uh, you know command. I mean, if he needed polls, he didn't figure out how to put that key in the lock. And 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 I, I you know I think it's going to be a close race. And Sharice Davids is not a perfect candidate. And she's, you know, the first, the end of the first term is traditionally the most exposed time. And, you know, nominally a Republican like Amanda Adkins, who's not off the charts, uh, has a chance. But uh, I I think the dynamic there is so different than the statewide race. There's there's another name that's going to come up in this race a lot that's not Trump. And it's Brownback. Yes, but uh, Brown, let me stop you there for a minute. Let me stop because I talked about this on 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 Four Star the other day. I find it fascinating that the Democrats came out of the box Tuesday night, linking Adkins to Brownback, not to Trump. And I uh, sort of said I thought that Brownback for some voters is kind of old news. He's been gone for a couple of years now. He's not perceived as the threat that maybe Donald Trump would be? Yes and no. If you were talking about pretty much any other candidate, I, I think I think that would be right on. That the, the idea of using Brownback at right now, he's not been, you know, he's he's not been governor for th- for for three years for three years at this point. Um, it, it's, it's 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 you know that that's the past. However, it's a very important part of Amanda Adkins' past. She was Brownback's 2004 campaign manager. She worked for him as a 
as a as a as a U.S. senator. She was chairwoman of the party when he and Chris Kobach were part of that clean sweep Republican campaign in 2010, and she 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 was appointed to chair his children's cabinet. So when Amanda Adkins talks about her biography, she's intrinsically linked to Sam Brownback, and she can't really talk about her experience uh, as, as being the children's cabinet, which which she would like to do without the acknowledgement of Sam Brownback. And there's, it is a very essential part of her political career. And I, I still think there is that lingering after effect. Now your point is well taken that Brownback is probably not as strong ammo um, as he was two years ago, but I still think in this particular race, in this particular district and with this particular candidate, Brownback will be, significant yeah we're into it uh, my guess is we'll see a campaign brian where uh you know amanda atkins does everything to connect sharice davids with nancy pelosi and you know the squad and aoc and defund the police and antifa and all that and then the democrats will be busy trying to tie amanda atkins to brownback and trump i mean it's very much a nationalized uh environment in that right way. and and and, and- Connecting Sharice Davids to the to the squad isn't really isn't really fair, but it is pretty fair to connect her to Nancy Pelosi. You go through her voting record; she's been a very close ally of Democratic leadership in her in her short tenure in the House. So, yes, you're going to see a lot of Nancy Pelosi mailers. You will see some Trump mailers, and you will certainly see some a lot of Brownback stuff mailers. And also, you know, Atkins's um, TV ads in the primary were strongly, strongly echoing Trump. You know, she, she had one, Brian, I don't know if you saw it where you are, that said the three biggest enemies to uh, the economy right now are the radical Democrats, the media, and the coronavirus in that order. And I wanted to actually ask her yeah. about that when we had her on with our interview, but I mean, that that is uh, messaging that you just yeah. don't hear out of... Well, here's the other thing, you yeah, know, one of that. the interviews we did with her where we go, I asked them to give a letter grade to the president for coronavirus, and she gave him a B. Uh, Adkins gave him a uh, Trump a B for his response, which One was on the low end of what the Republican candidates gave. Yes, her. yes, she was actually weaker on that than any of the others. But you would guess that would show up at some point too, particularly if Corona continues to be the issue that it is. Okay, we've got to deal with the second district. My gosh, what a deal there! Steve Watkins, an incumbent, out. Uh, you know, in the midst of continuing scandal, Brian. Um, Jake LaTurner, young, chose to go for the House, not the Senate, probably a wise choice. Dennis Taylor, by the way, did very, very well in that race for a guy that you very, uh, very rarely saw. But what do we think there? And then the Democrat in that race, Michelle De La Isla, is, uh, is, uh, may, may put up a challenge. And the second elects Democrats occasionally. It's, it's, a very com- it's a very compelling race. I mean, first of all, I mean, like I know, I know we last time it was on, we talked about it, but the the Steve Watkins scandal is just like or, or not even a scandal. Steve Watkins' career, this two year career, is one of got to be one of the most bizarre things in Kansas history in, in terms of politics. And we've had some bizarre things, but like you come out of obscurity, your dad spends money in the super PAC to get you elected. All of these weird things come out, but you still somehow edge up. And then, you know, you, you battle these bizarre rumors that you're going to resign because of something in your personal life. That doesn't happen. And then you're ultimately taken down because by your own your own explanation is that you didn't know how to register to vote, that you mistakenly put the wrong address. Obviously, you know, other people say 
he knew what he was doing. He was trying to obscure that he was living at his parents' house at the time. Guy basically financially ruined himself by running for Congress. Look at how much money he put into his 2018 campaign. He's still two, he's still $250,000 in debt to himself. And he's never going to get that money back now that he's lost. Um, <laughs> kind of tough to hold a fundraiser. <laughs> I mean, it, like Dave Feigl from the Washington Post, like said, you know, said this tonight. And I think this is right, which is Steve Watkins is part of a very select uh, group of people whose lives are immeasurably worse because they ran for Congress. Uh, you know, he's got look. He's he's got options if he wants to stay in Kansas. He's certainly can. His parents it's second district. I mean, let's yeah, just he's, got homes, he's got homes in Alaska and he's got a wife in Boston. Yeah. So he could go to one of those two places. Second um, district Republicans came to their senses. I mean, Jake Turner is a they, good candidate, and it's yeah, it'll they, be a much more mainstream race now. You know, Watkins had one with really like small plurality uh, back in 2018, and, and Jake Turner was you know back when Republicans thought they were going to lose this race in 2018. Jake Turner was already the guy. Yeah, that they, the, the next guy. Uh, there were people preparing for Paul Davis to come in and be a one-term member of the U.S. House. And people were already lining up behind Jake LaTurner. So, um, you know, LaTurner, this is a compelling race. LaTurner has a pretty interesting biography in his own right where he was, you know, raised raised by a single father. His mom struggled with addiction issues, was raised in Galena, Galena, Kansas. His dad, you know, managed the Sonic and had a teaching degree, eventually became mayor of the town. Right. Uh, it was worked for Lynn Jenkins, and he's now trying to follow in her footsteps. And then Michelle De Isla has one of the most fascinating life stories uh, you'll ever hear, where uh, she grew up in Puerto Rico. Uh, she was homeless at the age of 17, was a, a single mother, uh, you know, got, got her Section 8 housing, got her, her life together. You know, a Catholic priest encouraged her to pursue some ac- academic opportunities to study at Wichita State. And then, you know, becomes, you know, eventually moves to Topeka and becomes a kind of pillar of the activist community in Topeka and uh, gets elected to the city council and becomes mayor. And so, you know, just a fascinating woman to go from being, you know, a a homeless teen in Puerto Rico to mayor of Kansas's capital uh, city. Extraordinary, just an extraordinary life story. And she, I think the way in which Cherise Davids had a fascinating life story. And that helped compel people to get behind her. I think Michelle De La Isla is trying to 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 do a similar thing. And certainly she's she's outraised Laterner. She outraised both Republicans since January and uh, you know, has gotten some prominent support from Kathleen Sebelius and others. And so is there a path to victory in the second district? Yes. It's probably a bit more narrow now that it's the Republican nominee isn't facing criminal charges. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an open seat race. So it is anybody's game. You yeah. know, when this was an open seat race in 2018, the Democrats invested heavily in it. I think we'll still see how, how much they put towards this. And, you know, Jake LaTurner has a similar issue as Amanda Adkins, which is, you know, he was, he was appointed treasurer by Sam Brownback. He was in the legislature, was an ally of Brownback. I don't know that that has the same effect in this district as it does in the third, but it, it will be an interesting, it will be an interesting area. So we'll, I will say related to the Brownback point, Jake LaTurner was asked to run uh, for this seat by Jeff Collier. Jeff Collier endorsed Roger over Chris Kobach. 
Jeff Collier's lieutenant governor, Tracy Mann, won the Republican nomination in the first district. If you're Jeff Collier, that was a pretty good night for you. Yeah, pretty good comeback. You gotta you gotta look at it if you're Jeff Collier and you're thinking about 2022, be like, hey, there's still a lane for my type of Republican in Kansas politics. He lost that very tough race against Chris Kobach, but the lane is certainly open for him to, you know, continue to be an important part of the party if he wants to come back in 2022. Let me say right here, too, I sure hope that Jake Letourneau will sit down with us in the editorial board. He's turned us down in our requests for interviews, and that's too bad because I think voters in this part of the state would like to get to know him because he's very much an unknown here. Yeah, no question about it. Okay, two. Uh, we're almost out of time, Brian, so two quick questions. Let's stay in Kansas for the first one. I, I don't know how closely you may have watched this, but uh, you, you used to cover the state house, of course, here, um, and it was pretty much a wipeout for the moderates uh, in the Senate and the House. Uh, you know, John Scuba lost. You just go down the list. Jan Kessinger lost. I mean, so Laura Kelly's up for two years of uh, of a challenge, isn't she? Because of that, assuming the Democrats don't win those seats, Burnett Loomis kept saying, "Well, the Dems may win now. The Dems may. We'll see." But but certainly it's a more conservative legislature, and that's going to make it tougher for her. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, and, and I know my colleague Jonathan Shorman is working on a, a, a deeper look at what the ramifications were. You know, I think what happens when you have you have Marshall, Hamilton, and Kobach all turning out conservative voters. There was no one at the top of the ticket to turn out moderates. I think we said that this was likely to happen. Um yeah, this could be this could have huge effects for Medicaid expansion. It may mean that you still have, you know, Democrats are more competitive in some of these seats and gain seats in the legislature. But at the same time, the Republican delegation is more becomes more conservative. So making a deal might become more. Difficult. And if Democrats don't win and if Republican conservatives do redistricting next time is going to be a nightmare for the Democrats. I mean, this whole conversation we're having about the third and the second district could be altered by veto proof majorities in both houses. If that's what it turns out to be, let's save that for another day. I think that's an important thing that's happening. We need to pay attention. To. Okay. One last question. Let's go quickly to Missouri which is getting national run for Medicaid expansion. Uh, it passed by six points. Anything we can learn from that nationally, uh, 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 Brian, particularly on the presidential level maybe, and certainly on the level of the governor's race between Mike Parson and Nicole Galloway. And Missouri has also got national attention for Corey Bush's amazing. And Corey uh, Bush's blowout. If you're a progressive in Missouri between, you know, Corey Bush's win, between Medicaid expansion, it was a good, you know, good Tuesday for you. Um, I think, you know, look, Oklahoma passed Medicaid expansion just a couple of weeks before Missouri did. I mean, Medicaid expansion is a very pot. When it, voters have the choice, they are in this, even in very red states. Oklahoma is even more conservative than Kansas are. And so I think it certainly tells us that, um, you know, as we, as we go forward, Regardless of which party wins the White House um, or the um, or, or, or you know getting rid of this aspect of the ACA isn't going to happen. Med people like Medicaid expansion, and it's getting more and more lonely for states like Kansas that haven't expanded. It used to be one of four, fourteen, now it's one of twelve, and it's and right so, in the donut hole. I mean, Nebraska, exactly. yes, Colorado, Oklahoma, Missouri, right, yeah, uh, exactly. Like the, the neighbors are all expanding, and uh, you know. I just, 
the, the point I also just made about, uh, you know, uh, Corey Bush uh, in St. Louis is, you know, I, I think, you know, we'll get deeper into her, her victory at some point, but it was, I think a lot of young people, a lot of passionate uh, activists who were going out, at least in, in St. Louis, probably around the state. Yeah. All right. Brian Lowry from Washington. So good. And we'll, we'll, we'll get back to these between now and November. There's a lot of water to go under the bridge going forward and uh, campaigns matter. We got 90 days to go. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for joining us from Washington. Again, Brian Lowry and Derek Donovan, my good buddy. Uh, Derek, thanks for running the board and uh, joining the conversation. I'm Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board, and we have all been on Deep Background. Deep Background.